question for you. Why do we repeat ourselves in conversation? If you were to Google that question, the first search result would say this. uh, Repetition can help to emphasize a point, and it also adds to the power of persuasion. Now, Psalm 14 is a unique psalm because it's repeated almost word for word in Psalm 53 with just a couple differences. And then when you get to the New Testament in Romans chapter 3, a significant portion of Psalm 14 is quoted. So we have a psalm that's repeated and repeated again. Why? Well, to emphasize a point. To the careful reader of Scripture, this psalm is meant to persuade us. So, let's investigate this important psalm under four headings this morning, using the structure of the psalm as our mileposts. First, the fool who speaks. Second, the God who looks. Third, the humans who fear. And four, the people who sigh. So first, the fool who speaks. Verse 1, the fool says in his heart, there's no God. So in this verse, we overhear a certain kind of person saying to himself or to herself that God is not. Now, this is not the first time this exact phrase is used in Scripture, and it won't be the last time. And of course, in modern life, we have a name for this belief, atheism or atheism, the belief that there is no God. But it also is the belief that if God exists, he's unconcerned with the affairs of mankind. That's a practical sort of atheism that lives as if God doesn't. So naturally, a belief like this is going to have practical effects. So verse 1 continues. They are corrupt. They do vile deeds. There is no one who does good. Now, we see this perspective in secularism, the idea that morality should be based solely upon a regard for the well-being of mankind in this present life without consideration of any belief in God or a future state. That's functional atheism. We also see this in materialism. In fact, it's the pinnacle of materialism. Everything is either made up only of matter or is ultimately dependent upon matter for its existence and nature. And you may be wondering, Isaiah, why are we even discussing this? We came to church this morning to gather and worship God. What does this have to do with us? Well, atheism itself is on the rise. According to a recent Gallup poll from this year, just two months ago, as many as four out of ten Americans are unsure about the existence of God. And if we're being honest, many of us have had had doubts like this at some point in our lives, including me. Does God exist? And if He exists, does that even matter? But here in Psalm 14, the Bible refuses to accommodate this viewpoint 
as a valid one. In verse 1, and repeated in two other places, the Bible describes the person with this perspective in one word, and it's not a comfortable word. Fool. Ouch. But what does it mean? The word for fool describes an an aggressively perverse personality. An aggressively perverse personality. Now, 1 Samuel describes a man who was aggressively hostile to David when David was on the run from King Saul. David spared this guy's life only because this guy's wife, Abigail, interceded for him. That man's name was this same word, Nabal, fool, an aggressively perverse personality. Now, James Montgomery Boyce, who pastored 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia for many, many years, said this, the reason the person is a fool and not merely mistaken is that he knows there is a God, yet chooses to believe and act as if there is none. So picture this with me, if you would. A man floating on an inner tube 100 miles from land in the Atlantic Ocean. Now picture this man surrounded by the ocean, shouting at the top of his lungs, there is no such thing as salt water. Now the situation is absurd to consider, right? If the pelican overhead knew what was going on, it might laugh. And if we weren't dealing with life and death realities, verse 1 might also be humorous. But perhaps you're thinking, Isaiah, your example breaks down. Because you can see salt water. You can taste it. You can smell it. To deny that is to deny reality. But you can't prove the existence of God because you can't see Him. And you're right. No one can see the invisible God. But that doesn't prove He doesn't exist, does it? Not everyone, everything we know to exist can be seen. Consider pain. Do you believe pain exists? You can't see it, but you can feel its effects. Or how about black holes? They're invisible, but they are commonly accepted within the scientific community. Why? Because you can see the effects. You know it's there by what it has caused. And in Romans 1, Paul says the same thing about God. Whether you will admit it out loud or not, you know God exists, no matter where you are at in your spiritual journey, because of what God has caused. You see, Romans 1 turns out to be a commentary of sorts on Psalm 14. So look with me at Romans 1, verse 18. God says, What can be known about God is evident among them. Why? Because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, that is, His eternal power and divine nature, having been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what He has made. As a result, people are without excuse. So what is Paul saying? 
creation is like a 4K movie on an LG OLED TV. And it is revealing two realities in stunning clarity. One, God's existence. And two, God's power. God's existence and his power has been made evident. He has personally shown men and women these realities through creation, and they have been clearly seen and understood, but they've been rejected. And what's the result of that rejection? The one who denies God's existence or his power is without excuse. Why? Because that person is an aggressively perverse personality, or in the words of Psalm 14, a fool. And why is the fool without excuse? Because the one who says God doesn't exist, or the one who lives as if God doesn't exist, has come to that conclusion willfully and against what he or she has experienced in the natural world. Romans 1.18 says that by their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. You see, the fool's declaration in Psalm 14 is not made by someone speaking in a void, a vacuum, declaring uh, his doubt in the existence of someone or something he could never know. No, Psalm 14 is a picture of a man with a tongue made by God, with a mind given by God, using air supplied by God, existing in a world made by God, declaring the non-existence of that God. To twist C.S. Lewis almost beyond recognition, atheism is like a man saying, I refuse to believe in the sun. Even though by it I can see everything else, I'm going to close my eyes and declare it not to be. Now, my guess is that some of these assertions make some of us uncomfortable. After all, none of us can truly know what is in the heart or mind of another human being. So isn't it arrogance and presumptuous to call into question the sincerity of a man or woman's belief, especially in something like the non-existence of God? But Christian, this is where we can courageously affirm what Scripture says, lovingly, winsomely, and compassionately still engage with individuals who say they don't believe in God. Because God has spoken because God does see the heart and mind, and because God has engaged lovingly, winsomely, and compassionately with us who also once denied him. Now, perhaps you sit here this morning a bit stunned and offended by the words of verse 1. Perhaps you're exploring Christianity, and to you, this verse seems to confirm the stereotype of Christians as harsh and judgmental and self-righteous. So if that's you, can I speak to you for just a moment? Maybe this all feels a bit cringy. First, we long for Sojourn to be a place of genuine gospel culture. And we believe a gospel culture means at least three things. Lots of gospel, 
lots of safety, and lots of time. Our culture would have us believe that in order to be safe, we must be affirmed in our beliefs. You must be affirmed in your truth and the decisions that flow from it, and I must be affirmed in me and mine. And we're told that any context or any person that doesn't affirm you in your truth is not safe. But a gospel culture recognizes that truth exists outside of ourselves. And a gospel culture rejects outright the claim that only those who affirm me truly love me. It's actually the opposite of safe and loving to affirm anyone in a false reality. That's not loving. That's cowardly. Now, we certainly don't want to be jerks in how we communicate truth. So we want to share gospel truth with conviction and compassion. And if you're not convinced, we want to offer you a place of genuine safety here where you can take in the truths of Scripture without being convinced and have a place to voice your doubts. We're not threatened by your presence here. And we trust you will not feel threatened by our conviction and our compassion. In fact, we are thrilled that you're here and we hope that you sense you are genuinely safe in this group of people. So we want to give you time. We're not in a hurry. All of us are in process in this room, including the guy behind this wooden stand. So we want to offer you gospel truth, offer you true safety if you're not convinced, and plenty of time for you to ask questions, express your doubts, and do so in community. But second, if you are genuinely an atheist, let's do a brief thought exercise. Consider for a moment if you are wrong. The consequences of such a wrong belief about something so important would be catastrophic. Now, if you were wrong about something so significant, wouldn't you want to be warned? Psalm 14, 1 is the warning from God. He doesn't choose to use neon signs, push notifications, billboards, or targeted ads on Facebook. He uses his words. And many a functional atheist Practical atheist has been stopped cold by the words of Psalm 14.1. So in this sense, God is acting in supreme love and compassion towards us as he confronts us with the reality of his existence and of our own stubbornness in refusing to acknowledge it, casting doubts upon our doubts. Friends, he doesn't want us to live in the darkness of our own imagination about reality. He wants us to live in the light of truth. Now, third, if you still feel uncomfortable with verse one, just hang on. We're all about to join you in the good ship USS discomfort because that's just verse one. Now, you may remember this line from Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. When his nephew comes into his counting house and wishes him Merry Christmas and Scrooge gets upset, 
And his nephew says, don't be cross. And how does Scrooge respond? How can I not be cross when I live in such a world of fools as this? Merry Christmas. Bah, humbug. After reading the first verse of Psalm 14, many religious people may be tempted to think, I live in such a world of fools as this. But the psalm has only just opened. Verse 1 describes the fool who speaks. Verses 2 through 4 describes the God who looks. Look at verse 2. The Lord looks down from heaven on the human race to see if there is one who is wise, who seeks God. Now, when you read verse 2, you should picture standing at Glacier Point in Yosemite, in Yosemite National Park and staring down at Bridal Veil Falls, investigating it from that great height. The transcendent God is looking down, investigating mankind trying to find if there's anyone who's wise, if there's anyone who seeks him. And what does he find? All have turned away. All alike have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Now, these words parallel verse 1. The psalmist is saying, we all live in such a world of fools like us. The fool is not a rare subspecies within the human race, as one man says. All human beings are fools apart from the wisdom of God. Psalm 14 hasn't quite offered itself as a three-step guide to healthy self-esteem, has it? Each of us this point, or each of us at some point this week, have engaged in a functional practical atheism. We have lived in numerous ways as if God does not exist, or as if his existence has no practical ramifications for our life. And this psalm indicts us with three stinging judgments. Indictment number one, we reject wisdom. As God looks down to see if there are any who are wise, all have turned aside. Apart from the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit, fallen man has no capacity nor desire to understand spiritual things. And every time you and I sin, we are embracing the lie that we know better than God does. We are rejecting wisdom and embracing our own wisdom. Now, as a child growing up in a Christian home, I knew all the right lingo, I had all the right answers. But I thought for years I could earn God's favor through my own righteousness. And the resulting pride and insecurities were devastating. Why? I had no capacity to understand reality as it actually is. Or in the words of Romans chapter 1, professing myself to be wise, I had become a fool. Indictment number two, our core hungers are corrupt. The psalmist says no one seeks after God, which is actually absurd if you consider it. 
a bluegrass group, the Arcadian Wild has become one of my favorites, especially their album, Principium. One of those songs described God speaking to Adam in the Garden of Eden. God says to him, keep your eyes on me, watch and learn how to be. If you keep a hold of me, you will truly be free. But rather than keeping our eyes on God, seeking Him, learning to be like Him, no one, not one of us, seeks after God in our natural state. Why? Because our hungers are corrupt. Indictment number three. Our inability to do good betrays our, progress, our aggressively perverse personality. No one does good, not even one. Even my best attempts this week, speaking personally, my best attempts this week at goodness were tainted with pride, discolored with self-love, warped by manipulation, and stained with mixed motives. And even if we allow for the possibility of one genuinely unmixed, purely good deed, that could not cover the tens of millions of my thoughts, words, and actions that are impure, not good. For no one does what is totally and completely good, not one. You see, Psalm 14 is speaking so directly because as human beings, we have a tendency to associate ourselves with positive things and others with negative. But Psalm 14 will allow no such shenanigans. It unmasks us all before God. Lacking in wisdom, corrupted in our hungers, unable to do good. But the next question is this, so what? Why does that matter? So what if men and women choose to suppress the truth of the existence of God? Why should we genuinely care? We'll look at verse 4. Will evildoers never understand? They consume my people as they consume bread. They do not call on the Lord. We should care because when image bearers of God deny the God whose image they bear, they will look like him less and less and less and less. And that means that pain and evil and oppression and suffering will only increase. And so in a materialistic, secularist, sex-oriented culture, everyone becomes a means to someone else's ends. Humans become commodities, whether in sex trafficking or through app algorithms designed to capture the hearts and affections of human beings. We are commodities. Image bearers become beasts of burden, exploited to help rich and powerful people glut themselves with more rich and power. We consume more and more through our desires that have been misshapen by our own blasphemous idolatry. And so we forsake our only hope. We do not call on the Lord. So verse 1, the fool who speaks... Verses 2 through 4, the God who looks. Third, the humans who fear. The end result of all of this 
in the heart of a human being is genuine fear. Verses 5 and 6 introduce both fear and hope. Verse 5, then they will be filled with dread, for God is with those who are righteous. Now, there's no visible cause for this dread. In the words of Proverbs, the faithless flee when no one pursues. We fear because we know that all is not right with the world, and we know we are part of the all that is not right. But notice the hope. In verse 2, God looked down from heaven. But notice in verse 5 that God is present and he is near. He is with the righteous. But let's just pause right there. Isn't that a contradiction? This whole psalm to this point has just concluded we are all under sin. We are all functional atheists. So how is it that God is with some, that is, the righteous? How can both be true and this not be a contradiction? Well, verse 6 answers that question. The Lord is His, the oppressed righteous one's refuge. You see, in His unmerited, undeserved favor, God chooses to open the eyes of practical atheists so that they can see his grace and his beauty and his glory. And when that happens, we become so captivated by the beautiful glory of Jesus Christ as the true son of God that we lay down our blasphemous thoughts and God leads us to repentance. And then God puts us formally, functionally, functional atheists into his family. So we stop pretending to be God and we choose rather to cast our lot with God. And the Lord forgives mercifully, graciously, without conditions. But how? How can God forgive treasonous rebels? Fools like me through the Lord Jesus Christ. It is in Jesus Christ that we see the invisible God. And we are told that all who seek, the, seek refuge in the Lord God from their functional atheism through Jesus Christ will find God responds with grace and with favor. And what scandalous grace is that? The sinned against God makes rebels and treasonous idolaters and usurpers into sons and daughters. Who can fathom this? And for us, God considers Jesus to be our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, and redemption, as Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians. Jesus becomes our wisdom. We don't seek wisdom. Jesus becomes our wisdom. He becomes our means to understand spiritual reality. Jesus himself becomes our morality, our righteousness. He has done and only has ever done what is right. And when we repent and turn to Jesus, 
God places Jesus' righteousness on us and places our sins on Jesus. And Jesus becomes our sanctification. In him, we are set apart to serve God who is radically changing our core hungers. So in one grand act, God removes the evidence of our foolishness as found against us in this psalm. He releases us from his wrath and he declares us not guilty for our treason. All of this in Jesus. The fool who speaks, the God who looks, the humans who fear, finally, the people who sigh. Verse 7 is a sigh from those who are now righteous before God, those who are seeking their seeking refuge from their rebellion in him. Oh, that Israel's deliverance would come from Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Now here at Sojourn, we understand the gospel in these terms. Now, why don't you read this aloud with me on the screen? God the Father, by the Spirit, saves sinners and restores his creation through the perfect life, sacrificial death, and bodily resurrection of Jesus. We still live in a world of fools like us who oppress others. So as those who have found in God our refuge, refuge from our own godlessness, we sigh for the restoration of all things. We enjoy present salvation while longing for that time when evildoers no longer will consume God's people like dinner rolls. When the curse is reversed and we dwell with God in perfection. So, what should a psalm like Psalm 14 do in our hearts in the meantime? Well, first, Psalm 14 should strengthen our hearts by confirming for us that we are on the right side of history. The right side of history is God's side. It's tempting to think otherwise. C.S. Lewis said, when the whole world is running towards a cliff, he who is running in the opposite direction appears to have lost his mind. We have not lost our minds. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you are not a fool to place your hope in an unseen God. For in Jesus, we see the invisible God. Number two, Psalm 14 ought to move us to tears giving us deep compassion for those who are still yet suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. They are not our enemies. In many cases, they are our neighbors, our family members, our friends. And yet they are not safe from harm. Christian, your role in the world isn't to amass the most friends and followers on social media or in the workplace. Your role in this world is to declare the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And we do so by proclaiming gospel facts 
with conviction and compassion while simultaneously living out gospel acts in love. Both are necessary, gospel facts and gospel acts. Third, Psalm 14 bows our heads in thankfulness as it generates a deep humility within us. Because but for the grace of God, you and I would have remained in verse 1. Aggressively perverse personalities in opposition to God. And it's only because of God's grace through the Lord Jesus and the fact that God turned the lights on that you and I are now found in him, with him, as his righteous ones. Finally, Psalm 14 should deepen our size. There's no virtue in pretending life is all good and we are all set. I'm from New England. When asked how we're doing or if we need something more, we say, I'm all set. And we tend to live life as if we are all set. But life is broken. But Jesus will return. He is going to restore and renew all things. So until then, we long with all of creation with deep sighs for the restoration of all things.